Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. My next guest is not only one of the most in-demand Hollywood film composers, but he has pushed many composers to not just repeat the same boring cliched tropes we've heard time and time again. He's composed the music for the How to Train Your Dragon movies, Happy Feet, Shrek, and Chicken Run, among others. And the composer is John Powell. Hello. I'm not sure about pushing other composers. Uh, I'm just generally grumpy. Your Instagram uh, post of how to do better or we must do better really uh, hit a lot of people. Well, yeah, well, it, it's simply not good enough. I, I do. It's a question I ask myself all the time. It's very easy. Film composing is about getting it done. So often more times than it is getting it done well. So <laughs> I understand all of those things that I complained about. I understand, uh, you know, and I, I'm sure every time I listen to any piece of music I've ever written, I will, I'll hold my head in shame when I realize I was doing exactly what I'm bitching about everyone else doing. I think it's just, I'm trying to say, okay, let's, let's move forward. Let's try and get something else going because these, you know, cliches are cliches because they, work and they're very effective but let's make some new cliches <laughs> yeah i feel like um it's been interesting there's been this uh, spitfire contest recently that they hosted where it was just crazy to to realize that there's a lot of people still trying to copy the hans zimmer sound from 10 years ago plus <laughs> yes i was gonna i was gonna i was thinking maybe it's a bit too late now i didn't see it until it was almost over and i just could not be bothered to do anything i was going to enter under an assumed name uh, just and see if i could do it with just banjos and chicken noises uh, and see how that sounded i think it could have been fun yeah imagine if that ended up being the new uh the new cliche <laughs> yes well, exactly that's my that's my point you know there's no barriers to um to interesting things you know obviously the barrier to that scene working with chickens and banjos is good taste but that would be the funny bit of it so. for sure um and yeah just on that note john um so you played violin growing up yeah from seven till 15 sort of thing and then from 15 till 20 i played viola yeah i was curious if there are any other instruments that have uh, caught your attention maybe in recent years in terms of things you want to study oh i i, I mean even then i studied the very first thing i probably ever composed on was the was a double bass standing up against the wall and I would have only been able to be high enough to play below the bridge. But if you plonk on the four strings below the bridge, you get these wonderful harmonic notes. Uh, and I remember as a very young kid, my father had a double bass and I would play those four notes and it kind of a gamelan style thing. Um, so when I was at college and I was introduced to world music because they had a great record collection, uh, I, that was the first time I actually heard gamelan music. Um, so I studied percussion as well at college. Um, I allegedly studied piano, but I'm a terrible pianist. Um, but then you also, I mean, there's studying and then there's the interest in different instruments. And, you know, there is many pieces that I love where I have a great wonder and 
joy on how a certain instrument is used. So then I will probably use an oboe a certain way because I'm always trying to recreate in my heart, you know, the sound of, you know, an oboe solo in, in Beethoven six, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, there's, but I've never really sort of sat down and studied anything terribly well. Obviously, as I got more money in this business, I had great fun working with, you know, people like George Deering, who has many, many different instruments. And then you think, okay, well, I'm going to get one of those myself. So you go and online, you buy these crazy instruments and then you play around with them. And sometimes I play around with them and sample them and, or actually play play something and then cut out loops and use those as loops. And other times I'll play something, get an idea, and then get in a good player like George to come in and play that crazy instrument but play it better because I know that he's more virtuosic on it than I am. So learning you know, wonderful, the wonderful sounds you can make out of an instrument. Sometimes there's these kind of instruments that any of us in theory can play uh, and the colours are so interesting and the, you know, the technique even develops different ideas musically um, that, you know, it's, it's fascinating to be able to get and actually the instrument in your hands and, and, and fiddle with them yourself. Right. And it seems like you've always been fascinated with the experimentation process of it. Yeah, I've always liked sound as well. Um, you know, I was a violinist, as it were, because at a certain age I heard a you know violin concerto and it spoke to me. But I think even before then, I mean, the, probably the first instrument I ever tried playing was trombone. I, my father's friend was the first trombonist in the Royal Philharmonic, and he lent me a sopranino, beautiful little silver sopranino trombone, which is probably not much bigger than that. Uh, but when you're five, that's probably, you know, thing. so I remember learning to play the trombone, first of all. Uh, and then I played that a bit through school. Um, I remember playing some Bizet uh, in the trombone section. Uh, and then they also didn't have a snare drummer. So I played in the snare drum on another piece. And then I played the violin. Uh, and then I played some guitar in that concert. <laughs> so I, I like playing lots of different instruments, but I've never been able to play any of them well at all. They've all, I'm pretty terrible at everything. Um, but I like, I like getting my hands on these things and seeing what sounds you can get out of anything, really. For sure, yeah, the physicality of the instrument, just having it or understanding how to hold it, how to breathe if it's woodwind or brass really helps. Yeah, and also by the the language it it leads you to, you know, there's one thing which is being virtuosic and being the master of an instrument that can lead you into amazing places harmonically, melodically, because your fingers are so good at playing. But unfortunately, I'm not good at anything. So I just kind of get very basic stuff come out of my fingers and I have to find ways of making this rather basic output from my low end technique i have to make that into something much more interesting so that either means editing or div- or picking up a different instrument and that'll lead you in a different place so if i pick up a guitar and i tune it strangely and i i find different notes that i would ever be able to play on the piano or i would ever be able to play even if i if i had the guitar in the proper tuning or a more normal tuning so you know retuning instruments you know detuning instruments and then as well as electronic um, manipulation, uh, anything that's, you know, you can hear an interesting timbre or interesting sound, the way the sounds develop or the thing it makes 
the track do because of it's a co- an unexpected color maybe yeah on that note have you ever made a violin section at a recording date retune the violin or detune it uh no there's there are sort of rules you have to be, be very careful about with violin sections i i i've done a couple of things where the string section i've i, I bought 60 um felt picks hmm. uh, like guitar picks but they're felt uh and they're for a very soft sound on guitars because you know violinists and cello players certainly in los angeles you know they have instruments that were are worth more than their houses somewhere <laughs> so you're gonna you you know you don't want them to hack at their instruments with something to think but i also wanted a very soft gentle sound of sort of strumming and we we tried it you know just to kind of almost like a tremolo with a felt pick and, and most people got it uh unfortunately there was a few the viola section didn't really like doing it. I tried to get them to do it banjo style, which is a thing. Mm-hmm. But it's harder on the cellos as well if you think you're trying to do a tremolo. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it, it, it's quite interesting to get the section to get out of their comfort zone with pizzicatos and, and actually turn it into something else. For instance, hammer-ons, something I always have to explain a little bit. But, you know, it's a guitar term, which is, you know, the, the, you have one note down and you pick on that note. Or you pits on that note if you're on the string, and then the second note can come much quicker than you could pits again. So you couldn't do that very quickly. To don't be because you've got to go in and out, in and out twice. It's pizzicato. It doesn't really work with a pick. You can do it up down. Okay, well fine. But if you're not got a pick, how do you do it? So the other thing is from guitar technique, from you know, from heavy metal solos. You, you know, obviously you just hammer on. So that second finger lands heavy enough to re-trigger the note, as it were, which is fine if you're if you've got a, a strat that's plugged into a, a Marshall stack, um, it's a little harder on, you know, on uh, stringed instruments. But it's it's an interesting it's an interesting technique. Uh, I'm not, you know, I I don't study the instruments well enough. Sometimes even instruments I know how to play, I don't study the part carefully enough to really figure out the to make it easier or make it uh, really playable. Sometimes I think about it a little bit, but generally I'm too rushed, so I, I just found that the players figure stuff out i mean that's a great thing is we we have a such a huge base of the most amazing players on earth you can give them anything and they'll figure stuff out for you it's amazing the amount of notes that get fixed in scores but people don't realize that right yeah it's i think just such a loss that in a lot of music schools you you can study composition but without hearing players actually play the music it's like what are you doing this for Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the most useful thing about my college as well was, you know, a a wonderful sort of faculty who just said, here you are, that's, you've got, you've got other players here, the other students, you've got some practice rooms and, and, you know, recital rooms and, and anything you want to bring to us, we'll comment on. It's like my composition teacher wasn't dictating anything. He was just like, okay, tell play me something, show me something, I'll react, and you can use my reaction as something you can either learn from or ignore, you know. <laughs> so if he told me everything was, you know, he liked the idea of it structurally, but everything was bunched up in the middle or the arranging was bad because it was everything was too complicated or uh, it looks very elegantly done, but what are you saying? You know, that's, the, that's a great sort of um, mentor to, uh, you know, with asking the hard questions. Obviously, obviously, there's a lot of detail and technical detail you you really need to pick up and 
figure out and they can help with that as well but but the the trick is having somebody who'll tell you the big picture and musicians you know your fellow students who will then show you the the minutiae and how what you think is going to happen won't or will uh, more than than you think or less than you think right yeah and i guess just knowing what you're saying dictates the performance too and i mean that is all that film scoring is is having an idea of what you want to say and whether being right or wrong with what the director wants. Yes. All music is, all music works when you sort of know what you're saying. I mean, I, I always think that there's the music I don't, the only music I really don't like is music that doesn't take an opinion, I think, because it seems to wander and be, you know, naive music. There's a great difference between Satie, who's, painting a very, very precise picture of exactly what he's, and somehow you know exactly what he's saying, and some bollocks by somebody who's flouncing around on a piano and thinks that they can do that same thing. It's, it's not naive, it's, it's immature. There's a great difference between compositions that are immature and compositions that are naive. Naive, but uh, a deep understanding of, of the language that you're trying to speak is very different from somebody who's we're just noodling because it's easy to noodle. And a lot of film music is just noodling. Mm, right. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, uh, I mean, the longer I've been here, the more I've realized the first idea is the one that you typically just go with because well, deadlines among other things, but sometimes laziness too. Yeah. You know, it depends what part of it is you can afford to be lazy on, I think. You can be inspired by a film so much that your first idea of melodic and harmonic writing is is going to do the trick, you know, great. Um, if you don't really understand the film and you just sit down and start noodling, you might come up with something really interesting and it might not be what you think it is or it might be you might get lucky and it might work. Starting just because you have to start often does, I think, lead you into a, a dead end sometimes where you've you've made material that isn't worth developing and that's the dangerous thing i think and but you know I mean, that's just my my pers- personal preference is that i i can't begin until i think i've got the the material that i can develop from but sometimes under pressure yeah you just go, you just go for it and just start in a scene and just write something in the scene but i think that's not it, it stops being noodling when the scene inspires you into something really interesting and then you've got that scene sure you've scored that now that one scene but now what have you got often you know i'll write something in a scene in the middle of a movie or at the end of the movie and i learn from that scene how to then do the rest of the movie with that theme um you know and i learned to okay well i've got to build i've got to build a highway to this particular moment now i've done this moment so using the i mean i think that's why you know the only way i can justify giving away all the publishing on film music is that you are using somebody else's creation to inspire you. So the music I write should fit the film because the film is inspiring me to write. So I'm, I'm getting everything I need to absorb the story and, and then give out my reaction to the story. That is worth a a collaborative, you know, kind of contract. (laughs) Hence, you get the publishing, okay? Because I wouldn't have write, written, I could never have written this music without your film, right? Okay, but if 
it's just I need music and I'm not really interested in your film and I need to write something and it just noodles away and it comes out. Well, for me, that's not very interesting, but I mean, a lot of film music is, is kind of noodled and it's fine. It's absolutely fine because it sort of does an impression of music. It doesn't have to have structure or develop, development or any kind of what you could go back and call musical integrity. It just has to set a tone. And the tone is almost the most important thing, I think, of film scoring. So as long as you get the tone right, you've done a really good job. If you can get the tone right and get music, the music to be kind of um, formed with strands, then for me, that's that's my preference. Gotcha. And I had a question on that too, because you talked a bit about binary symmetry in music. <laughs> Overused. And in terms of forming the best possible music, I mean, I think that's something that's interesting is this idea of writing themes before you actually go and tackle the picture. Whereas uh, what you do, and what I think a lot of people do too, is is watch the picture and get inspired by it. Um, and I think sometimes with that though, you you are limited by the by the edits in a way. And sometimes you do have to to cut bars or whatever. But I'd love for you to like talk more about your gripes with uh, binary symmetry. Binary symmetry. Well, that's just to do with the fact that everything has to be in two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-twos. There's a great difficulty in in listening to film music for me when, uh, or pop music, as it is, you know, that, that's one of the main sort of things that I, I have a problem with, which is that if you look at the harmonic structures that were allowed until sort of quite recently, and in film music, it, it just, it doesn't have to be four chords that you go around or eight chords that you go around. I mean, that's a stretch even nowadays, but it's normally four chords. I, I understand, I understand why you do, uh, um, you know, one of my favorite pieces of music ever is the end of Act One or Act Two of um, Tosca, and it's this magnificent piece that that uh, Puccini wrote, where the tolling bells between two notes to call everyone to church for Mass. Uh, he uses that as the background to a kind of a a repeating uh, structure, uh, uh, which is I can't think of the name for it. Now, but it, it, what's amazing is that he reharmonizes against these two tolling bells uh, in a way that just develops over two and a half minutes, three minutes of, the, of this finale of the act until you are told everything dramatically that you could ever be told about what's going to happen and how much heartbreak is about to come and and the inter the interplay of life. You know, you have a church service going on and you have villagers and you have um scarpia telling us that he's gonna have his way uh, so you have this kind of idea of a determined you know autocrat who's not going to say no and not going to put up with no and all of that is in the music without ever understanding the italian <laughs> or even seeing it uh and it, it's because of it's because of a constant and pushing against that constant with harm with harmonic language, albeit maybe modal, but it's just an extraordinary piece of music. So when people just go around four chords without an intention, the thing is that again, it's in film music, it's become a bit of a, a thing because of you know everyone's listened to Philip Glass um, and seen that, that you know minimalism works. 
but they don't realize that Philip's music is structured in a way that the repetition and the and when it doesn't repeat uh, are equally important. It's not just repetition and you just change because it's two bars or four bars <laughs> or one bar. Uh, it's his changes are there to intrigue you or settle you or to to be counter to what you expect, to play with your expectations, to fulfill your expectations. He's having a conversation with you as to when, why he changes from these cycles. So when people don't do any changes and they're set into a, a form of repetition, the question is why? And if you go to film music and you look at what Hans has done with The Dark Knight, this kind of idea of repetition, you know, Chris Nolan was making films that that used that that dirge, which is actually a kind of a, a musical term. It's not a, it's not derogatory. Um, that dirge to say something, which is like you know, it's a way of saying fate rolls forward. Uh, we're you know this this story is being built on a, a singular idea that is going to come to pass, and you get this kind of sense of dread, or you get a sense of excitement. So the linear format of repetition, in in the way Hans did it, was built into the filmmaking. So now, if you just take that out of context of having a, a filmmaker who understands what you're saying, and you then try and stick that music in there simply because they did the temp there, or because it's easy to do musically it's a lot easier than other types of music to do it's like well i set up one thing and i get it rolling and it's great i'm done you know i've done 10 minutes of music in a day the question is why does it repeat um when does it change and um, why does it change and what is the purpose of all change so there's there's a bunch of philosophical questions about life the universe and everything that i think should be asked of every measure of your music so if you say this is two because i have two hands this is four because that's twice of my two hands. This is eight because it still feels symmetrical and it feels balanced and I recognize this from everywhere else. Fine, you are then, you're just saying cliche, cliche, cliche. Nothing new comes. And then anytime you don't change for the end of the thing, it's like you've said nothing. You've said, I'm just fitting in with the rest of what is written in music. You know this already. I'm just going to give you what you already know. I have nothing else to say. So then you've now immediately denied us as an audience anything, any question that we have about what you may be bringing to the statement of having music at all in the film. If you choose times to change when they, when they are unexpected, when they're not fitting into 2, 4, 8, or 16, you know, then you're, you start asking questions of the audience and the, and the, those answers could be, this is intriguing, or this is unsettling, or why are there, why are there so many changes? I, I feel very unsettled by this. Or, wait a minute, we just did a minute and a half of, of one repetition, but now that repetition has changed. Why has it changed? Something has changed. Well, if you line that up in the film with a very important piece of information coming from one of the characters who for the first time lies, say, to somebody else in the, in the room, now you're, you're adding an extra layer to the storytelling. So if, you're, if the idea of writing music for film is to, is to help manipulate the story into places that at multiple levels give 
these interesting and fascinating questions of our of our uh, reflection of our lives in the storytelling you really have a responsibility to think why you're doing it musically if it's just oh i'm just noodling along and that's just fine well then fine i, I guess it's fine but i would i would ask you how about just thinking an extra half an hour about this and you know you've got all of this material and you just noodle it all out it's all fine why don't you just take one more look at it and ask yourself okay well what if i did that section you know if i just change here and i just change that one part from a vibraphone to a, a bass clarinet what does that t- what does this say uh, does it say that something has changed and it's not got better <laughs> it's got it's got darker or or you know, changing keys. I mean, this is another thing that people didn't don't do a lot these days, and I understand why. But uh, and then there were other complaints, you know, that were just generally about you know lazy writing, and and I'm guilty of all of them. I mean, that was one of the points that you know I've, I've done. I have sounded like Thomas Newman. I have ripped off Tim, Thomas Newman sometimes deliberately, sometimes very accidentally and embarrassingly so um and then is thomas newman felt embarrassed for sounding like thomas newman too well that's the thing is that we're the us all being lazy has denied thomas newman his his rights really (laughs) to be thomas newman um he's you know, probably constantly always irritated by this fact that is you know he can't turn turn on the tv without every piece of bloody music in every drama sounding like Thomas Newman. And it's like, wait, you know, so it's one thing to, you know, to, to homage somebody, but when somebody comes up with such a clear, identifiable and really simply constructed style, and then we all come along afterwards and we just go, Oh, I'm going to have that, 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 you know, the question is, I know you can't copyright style, but to just steal kind of the whole feeling of a composer away from him you know that fortunately the thing is thomas newman is better at thomas newman than anybody else so when thomas newman does thomas newman he does it perfectly when everybody else does it it's a bit shit but it's still it's such a it's such a you know pronounced style and easy to recreate technique if you if somebody's already created it and you just say oh i see what that is you know you can just take the four i four elements of it and sort of recreate them in slightly different ways you've got to ask yourself well what did i really create anything well you created a memory of other things you know you created a memory of other music which is part of the film composer's job but my problem is when you're creating a memory of somebody else's film music that's really dull. When you create a, a memory of somebody else's music, so okay, so rather than sounding like Thomas Newman, why don't you go and sound like George Crumb? You know, uh, why don't you go and sound like, uh, you know, the Kinks? <laughs> Anything, you know, there's so, so much great music out there. Go and find something much, you know, that's not another piece of film music to at least... To, uh, absorb and try and take some of the character from and preferably add that with another thing that you like so let's find something else to take the character from and a third thing so the minimum should be two maximum i'd say five more than five and you're just really standing confused but if there's at least two ideas that you've loved 
of somebody else's, then fine. But they must be, you must construct them so that they change each other. So that, the, so that what you get from these two, stealing two ideas becomes a new third idea. Uh, if you just steal en masse, just a single idea, and you just, just change a few notes, you are not creating anything. And in the time we have here, the short time we have to make music and enjoy ourselves, uh, you owe it to yourself to at least try and create something. I think that's uh, amazing too, in terms of fostering your influences to, to kind of birth something new, mm-hmm. which I feel like, yeah. Out of curiosity, what are the, um, for lack of a better word, pop music artists or the, um, the non-classical and non-film music composers you've been listening to? Um, I mean, there's lots of stuff. I mean, everything from, you know, Peter Gabriel, the fourth, uh, you know, people, Peter Gabriel four was very influential on me when I was a teenager. Uh, Kate Bush, I just discovered again, I'd forgotten completely about how much I loved Kate Bush's writing, you know, and I was, you know, she's written wonderful lyrics and everything, but that wasn't what I was listening to. I was always just, I would always just float over the lyrics. I wouldn't really be listening into the lyrics. I was only ever listening into the music and the, and the chord changes and the orchestration and the, and the, you know, the feel of everything. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones, I, I adore all, you know, those, those first three, four albums um, have been something that, since I was 17, I've, I've just studied and studied and studied. Um, uh, and that was when, when I met James Newton Howard, uh, I, you know, I've always liked his, his film music, but the thing I was most excited about was he produced one of, <laughs> one of her albums that I love, mag- the magazine. So, uh, and who else, uh, you know, a massive attack, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Goldie, a lot of stuff out of, um, the West country of, of England, a lot, a lot of that kind of um, trip hop stuff. Um, Bjork, obviously. Oh, all sorts of things. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, uh, The River, you know, that's, that's a language that he so perfectly captures of sort of the, the sorrow and joy of, of the edge of poverty. <laughs> in america um and 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 again i i i kind of i'm not necessarily listening to lyrics here at all this is just the music itself this is what i i and maybe i read things into the music that aren't meant but that's what i've always loved music for it's like it's my it's my interpretation of it Uh, as soon as it hits my ears i get to hear what i want in it and when there's lyrics as you know in pop music there's, there's always lyrics I either kind of, I either just float away from them in my interpretation of what the piece really, what the music really is, uh, or I use it. Uh, you know, I, I will. You know, seventeen by Janice Ian is is you know is the most heartbreaking lyric. You know, of all, one of the most heartbreaking lyrics of all time. And but musically, it goes with uh, you know an incredible sort of perfect musical expression of that idea so when when the lyrics and the and the melodies and the harmony come together and say all the same thing to me it all really works i mean um vincent by don mcclain don mcclain so if you listen to vincent uh you know that is a absolutely perfect piece of music but with this, these beautiful 
beautiful words to go with it. And when I listen to Puccini, I hear the same thing, even though I don't really understand the words, and I'll sometimes find out what an aria might mean. I, I have a real problem hearing watching the translations of opera because it, it, the words themselves, uh, when it's translated in English, they feel kind of, I don't know, without, they've lost the, the, the power for me sometimes when you realize the precision of what's being said. You, you, it's always better, I feel, to try and understand an aria, the translation of the aria as, a, as the, the nature of it that's in the, the libretto. So maybe I do that a little bit. Maybe I listen to pop music the way I do to Italian opera. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, so there's a few more questions here. Um, I want to ask you about your team because I feel like a lot of the people who've worked with you, worked for you, stick around for quite a while. And I think I've heard you say that you're not intentionally a mentor to these people, but you have shared a lot of wisdom with these people. And what do you think people who come to work for you don't know when they start and what do you feel like you've hopefully shared with them over the years? I don't know. I mean, they look, they know a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think I react to the people who have come to work with me. Uh, I react to their music when they, you know, when they're working on something and they show me that they have a sensibility that can, that can help me find, uh, you know, emotions clearly. And, you know, and, and there is probably a, there's probably an echoing to the, to the people I've worked with that are, of their, their history of music, their, what they've heard and what they like to mine. So, you know, uh, Paul Mounsey, who's the same age as me, we were even at, we crossed college uh, at college all those years ago. Um, you know, he's, he, he too loved Peter Gabriel, you know, but that's not, the music that we worked on together is very Peter Gabriel. It doesn't matter that it's not the style. It's just that there could be some harmonic shifts or changes that I'll do and I'll, and I, I'll show him and, and reharmonize one of the tunes and say, do you see what I mean? And because he's got the same sort of history of liking similar music, he'll go, oh, oh yeah, because probably in the back of his head, he's hearing the same connections that I've made to something I've heard when I was younger. So so our histories together, coming from certain places, mean that the shorthand of understanding music, similar music, is 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 going to help. Other times, people, you know, who don't have, I mean, Batu doesn't have a very similar history to me of the music that he's heard. Um in certain ways, uh, he's the great thing about Batu is he was he was never really that enamoured with film music. He's much more of a you know he spent his childhood on Rachmaninoff and and Liszt. Um, so that means that my communications with him, when I'm tapping into things that are really about sort of a, a classical, a much more classical background, <laughs> you know, he just he just fires straight off from that point. Um, and I, you know, if I wanted him to understand something by Henry Mancini, I would have to probably play it to him, but Paul Mounsey would know everything by Henry Mancini and more, you know, um, and would tell me things and, and world music as well. We've, you know, all the people I've worked with generally got sort of world music backgrounds. They've been steeped in the classical tradition, but, you know, have enjoyed 
pop music when it's smarter and more intelligent. Uh, you know, although you know, I was talking to Henry Jackman yesterday, uh, and he seriously was a a, a music high end music scholar. Uh, you know, like Harry Gregson Williams and uh, you know, and uh, a bunch of the <laughs> the English film composers. They all came, they were all kind of choristers. So they all came up singing his boy sopranos and they had amazing musical educations and, and Henry was no different, you know, fantastic education. And then he hit kind of his teenage years and just really discovered raves. So he then realized, okay, well, yeah, I might be able to write like Marla, but I just like to do some drum and bass. <laughs> and before you knew it, he was really good at it, of course, uh, because he also understood it because he was enjoying it. He was going to clubs and he was really enjoying it. And he was writing, and he could he could do it at a certain point, you know. He it could only get him so far, but that drum and bass will never that love of rave and the love of drum and bass will never leave him. But then you bring him back, and he's also got all the Vaughan Williams, and he's he's got all the Mozart Requiem in there, and he's got um, the Palestrina in there, and he's also probably got you know some crazy seventies singer songwriter stuff that you'd heard, and so all of that can then mixing his his mind into something that you know he and i could find common ground in because it's sort of it's coming out of some of the same strands so so the people i've always worked with well have have got a lot of com comparable history musically they're also there's people who who are who are smarter about music and there's people who are smarter about the storytelling you know, and, but you obviously, ideally, you want somebody to be both. But in my mind, it, my responsibility is to the storytelling and to the construction and the the architecture. So I do like to have people around who are very, very musical, and I think that's one of the reasons that we've, you know, we've it's worked well because I, I'm I'm not relying on them to understand the story better than me just make sure that i get all of the music up to scratch <laughs> i think that's the best way to describe it amazing um and then what would be your advice to anyone who's like up and coming and trying to either get into like an assistant gig or just trying to launch their own film composer career yeah this is the this is the perennial question is how to do this um so there's a couple of things which is i don't know how i did it I mean, I know how I did it, but I don't know how that could possibly ever work for anybody else. I mean, I just got really lucky. I think I wouldn't be able to do it now. There's too many people. I mean, uh, I just was lucky. I was, I was lucky to be born at an age where the computers started to get powerful enough that I could use them to supply me with all the, the playtime that I like. And then the question is, how do you do it now? And the way I look at it, to tell people is even if you become somebody's assistant, you can either learn, there's lots of stuff to learn. So being an assistant is part of an education, but the thing, even when you are doing that, so when I was helping hands, you know, I was using that experience to learn the things that I didn't know about this, the, the functionality of film and storytelling. That's that's the most important thing I learned from hands about, you know, filmmaking was filmmaking. You know, it was filmmaking. Be a 
where he 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 was always you know on at me so you must become a filmmaker you're not here to be the composer you're to be a collaborative filmmaker who just happens to specialize in music you know and so but even when i was doing that i was always trying to sort of impress him and develop somehow a, a unique sound that was different from his and different from anyone else's at remote control at the time it's called media ventures um so that's when i really got into the the realization that being different was the key to my success you know there were 15 people there and they were all great composers how was i ever going to jump the queue you know and get a film and uh, and you know was it about being better at storytelling i just didn't have enough experience at that um was it about being able to do hands and sound like hands better than anybody else there nope everybody else could do it very well my reaction was all right i have to do something that's going to just be different because the pe- the person i'm trying to impress hands is not he's not interested in having other people who can just sound like him he's interested in new ideas in creativity so i'm just going to go for that and that would be my answer to anybody is like never undervalue your creativity over all the other skills you've got to learn um so fine be an assistant learn things figure stuff out uh, put yourself under pressure all of that is very important but be an artist composer in the sense that say to yourself well what is my what do i have to say in this world with music what and that for me that comes from my history of music every piece i've ever heard has gone in and it's had a reaction with me and it's meant something and it's explored the meaning of life in a way that i can't say but it did it at a a deeper meaning so all of those things are in there they're they're burned into my soul i'm just going to keep going in and digging around and see what i i've always liked why not just using that you know and then as i say i would have been doing that and gone i am just sounding like this i'm just sound, why am i just sounding like that and that's dull i mean i i don't want to just sound like that so that's already been done so what else is there so then you look at something that almost is impossible to to mix with what you were working on and lo and behold you will find something else that you love in the history of the music you've ever heard but i bet you if you move things around and you fiddle with it enough and figure it out i bet they will fit together so now you end up with something that's unique because it's not just the one thing it's the it always takes two ideas to or two two pieces of your own musical soul you want to go and find at least two uh one is not enough i love Ricky Lee Jones I am not going to sound like Ricky Lee Jones but what if I also love the harmony in a love of three oranges by Prokofiev but I also like the way that Steve Gabb plays on that track would those two things work together now you've got something that's like no, nobody could go oh yeah that's that's Prokofiev and Ricky Lee Jones second album <laughs> you know uh people are going to do that because now it's going to become a weird thing that now you have to make work okay so i would also point out that when you find these kind of these fusions these um uh, you know these hybrid animals of of your 
sort of your own love of music, when you find them, they can be unruly and they can be, they can be chimeric. They will kill you if you're not careful. They will rear up and, and rip your throat out because you just added a bit too much tiger. So the question is, you know, then you keep, I, I, I'm quite convinced that it, I tried a lot of the stuff that ended up in Born Identity. I tried it in lots of movies before Born Identity, and it was probably chucked out because it didn't work. And it wasn't until I, I got it right on the right film, which was Born Identity, that a lot of those things that I'd been fiddling around with and trying to make work, uh, you know, just gelled. And so the trick is to constantly go towards something that you, you're interested in, two things, at least two things you're interested in simultaneously. And then half the time it will never work. And the other half of the time it might work. The might works. Now you take that as a hundred percent and 50% of the time, the might works will work well if you work on them longer. But of that, now take that as a hundred percent and 50% of that time that will never work with picture. So now you're down to quite small odds, really, as to make it work. And so it's taken a lot of experiments to get something that is interesting and will work with picture. So all the experiments that you do, you have to try out every time. And you'll try it in the films before the film that it works in. But it will tell you every time, nope, there's something wrong with this. It's too busy or it's too... Uh, clunky in the bottom end it's always going to get you you'll never be able to do this in an action movie because there's too many sound effects you know um there's never enough apparent motion in this because um because you've got it with dialogue so you can't have it loud you know so there's going to be a lot of technical things that are not going to that are going to stop it from working but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try put it up against picture and then say all right fine, it's not working yet, I'll try it another time or in another place in the movie, you know, or another place in your career. I mean, that's every idea I've ever had has been tested somewhere and has failed until you all know it because it worked that one place. But there's the seven other times I tested it and it did not work. And uh, you would never have believed what the hell I was doing to even try it there because it's so obvious that it fits in this film that everyone knows. What about the seven films before it where you would have all thought you're just crazy. That's never going to work, you know, it, but that's what it would have taken. You have to make a lot of mistakes to, to get an interesting thing happening. And that was what I would encourage everyone to do. Make more mistakes, be more interested in your own musical love. And, you know, and then, and also, and then learn all the technique you need to do, which is storytelling. So be a storyteller, be an artist composer, and, you know, be true to your own love of music. And those th three things, I think, balance, uh, you know, uh, at least the possibilities of you making music that speaks loudly enough to other people that they will come and find you. Um, so that you don't have to just kind of sit in the background um, sounding like Hans or James Newton Howard or anybody. You, know, you, you can find a way to your own voice and, and that unique voice, you know, will be of interest to somebody. 
And as soon as you find that somebody, then it'll lead on. Everybody gets a chance. I've always said this. I always think everybody got a chance. And I got lots of chances and I blew some of them. But I, I succeeded with some of the chances I got. The ones I blew probably taught me how to not blow it that third time. So in that case, if everybody out there is going to get a chance, you better be ready. And you're not, you, sh- you can't be ready by being, think, well, I'm already a genius. I should really just, why aren't they finding me? You have to ask yourself, why aren't they finding me? What am I doing? I'm not making music that's interesting. Okay. All right. That's a bit of a, ter- that's a terrible thing to say to yourself. Maybe my music is just not very interesting. Maybe it just sounds like everybody else. Okay. But yeah, but I'm doing a really good impression of hands. Why aren't they hiring me? It's like, well, there's hands. Why would they hire you? Okay. Well, you could sound like hands. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, fine. That's, that's absolutely fucking useless really for your career now, because there's a thousand people who are doing that. Can you sound like something that Hans has never heard and is, would listen to and go, holy shit, what's that? I've never heard that before. That's, that's the thing that's interesting. And that's why I've always tried to search for. I failed mostly. And the odd time I find it, we all kind of, we're going to all go, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. And then you look back and you go, how did I get there? And, I'm, and it's just nine times out of 10, it was, it was rubbish. And that one time worked. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this is going to help anybody, but yeah, this is, these are my, these are my kind of jumbled thoughts on this stuff. It's very, it's very hard to answer that question because I know everybody wants to do it. Um, but you know, we all have to come, we are all talented and useless in different amounts. And it depends on what part of the process you're talking about. Um, people can have a different balance of the things you need to be a film composer. And it is a, it's a, it's quite a selection of useful traits that make it work. You can have people who are very, very poor at the actual music, but are very good at understanding storytelling and are very good at selling uh, a confident understanding of that and producing music that is on the edge of useless, but is perfectly good enough to work for the film. And then you can have, I've met lots of people and perhaps you could say that some of the people I've, I work with, you know, can be, greater musicians than they need to be for a film and not good enough bullshitters <laughs> to give the filmmakers the confidence in them, which is something that's very hard for filmmakers to have the confidence in the one part of the filmmaking process that they really have no control over. Uh, it's a very hard thing to accept for any filmmaker that they can grab the they can often grab the camera and they can change the lens on it and make the shot look great. They can research all the pictures uh, in the, they can come up with a color scheme for all of the costumes. They can change the dialogue. They can change the, the visual effects. They can hear and separate out the perfection of the sound and the dialogue effects. And when it comes to the music. All they've got is like, okay, well, here's a temp. I kind of like this. That's a really, really basic language compared with what they are able to discuss with every other department in filmmaking. Um, so the, the trust is 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 required of you is is huge, and you're not gonna 
if you've got the wrong kind of personality, you will never get, you'll never move on because it's just not, you have to have the confidence to be able to deal with people who are very stressed under a lot of stress, under a lot of pressure uh, and know everything about what they're trying to do. They can't sleep at night because they don't know how to talk about the music. And so it's your job to, Make them feel that you understand the music part of it, dead, you know, dead for rights. You also understand their story and you also understand what their film needs. And you're willing to search and look for them and and be part of the madness of this creative process with them. All of those things together, plus an inner confidence that you have to give over, whether or not you've got it inside, it has to be. It's an externalized version of, you know, what you may be worried about, fine, or you may be completely confident about. Um, so it's it's human interaction and it's, it's connection. It's all the things that are in the music you also have to have in the, the, the way you collaborate as well. So there's, there's all these personality traits, you know, that can be, higher and lower in the kind of the the mix <laughs> uh at a certain point certain ones of them will cut you out of ever doing film music and some of them you can be very poor rap but you can make up for in other in other ways yeah and i think confidence aspect is just another skill you got to work on like your music yeah and but remember it's not just confidence about what your music is or whether or not you can write good music Okay, well, fine. Everybody can say, Look, I'm a great composer. Fine. Yeah, but that isn't what they want to hear. They, they actually, you know, thought, sure, sure, kid. I mean, you know, there's a thousand people who can tell me that. You know, you have sometimes a very short amount of time to give them the confidence that you know. You know, it's, it's like we all sit there and we go, and you bet play a cue and you go, ah, uh, you know, the demo's a bit rough and it's like this. Why are we giving a why am I trying to talk it down? This isn't what is important, whether or not it's in stereo or mono or it's in surround or whether you're hearing the full bass and stuff like that. The question is, does it work? You know, and the people you're working with, they need you to interpret the story and in a way that allows you to manipulate the music to, to help the story. They don't want excuses. They don't want, you know, platitudes they don't want oversimplified basics they want to see you understand you know instantly what they're saying why they're saying it and whether or not you can change something right there and then that will show you've understood it you know and i'm not saying that we don't all i get stuck on every movie with every director somewhere it's very hard to do but you have to walk into these things to get them with enough confidence in your ability to to play this game you know and and that's where being an assistant sometimes helps you get to you do get to see it happen at a higher level but also just doing it you know it's one of those things so i i did so many different crazy types of weird and wonderful things everything from doing advertising music to you know uh, installation art to you know strange little radio plays 
music behind them and anything anything I could think of to just learn something and and watch my ability to be able to manipulate the music in a way that was good for them for for the you know for the project and then also to interact with the, uh, the you know to collaborate with the filmmakers and get and watch their reactions to the music and see if I could figure out how to how to change things to what was needed by mainly by just understanding what the film needed and then showing them how you could immediately instantly connect with that storytelling and and make the shift that when they reacted to what you first played them uh, would be the answer even or even in the direction of the answer because you know you i've had cues where i've thought this is absolutely perfect for a thing and they've said ah, i don't know it's not that maybe it's that's not a maybe it should be b and if you were to head to b you might be right they might exactly want b but very often they say b and what they mean is x as in it's not a i know that because i've just heard that it's probably not b even though i'm suggesting that it's something else in other words it's wrong and i maybe can't quite describe how it's wrong so then the question is you the next time you play it for them you've either given them b because you think the B is the right thing to do, in which case they're happy because it is the right thing to do. Or you've said, okay, well, they suggested B, but I don't know how I'm going to make that work. But here's F. This is this is this other thing that maybe that's what they're saying. There's something wrong with it, I know, because it's not A, but maybe I'll try this idea. And they'll either go, I did ask you for B, and you've given me a completely different letter and i don't know why you've done that in that case you're fired thank you very much and i have had that uh, i have had somebody scream at me why won't you do what i i'm telling you to do to which my reply was you're not paying me to do what do your ideas you're paying me to think and yeah i, I did get fired but <laughs> it was it was the only thing that i could think of saying at the time because uh, you know it struck me that just my job was to not it was to to interpret not I, w- I was not there to write down it was i wasn't writing notes for somebody i wasn't i wasn't um taking notes i wasn't a stenographer on this thing i was there to react to their feeling about the first piece of music and come up with a a better answer knowing that there was a problem not that they could completely solve the, if they could solve the problem the problem musically if they could just describe exactly what they wanted, it would, you know, they wouldn't, they would be a composer. They're not, they're filmmakers. And, but they, but like every human on earth, they have a very, very visceral and instant reaction to music. So everybody, yes, is a critic. It doesn't matter who you are. You either like music uh, or you're dead, I think. <laughs> you know, uh, everyone likes some music. There's times when everybody hates some music. And there's times when nobody will agree on a piece of music and there's times when everyone agrees on a piece of music. So we all have reactions to it. And that could be our own, you know, that person's history, uh, you know, that person's kind of ethnicity, that person's upbringing, that person's, you know, was once dumped by an accordion player and will never want to hear an accordion ever again. So, all right, 
be careful, you know, <laughs> don't use an accordion because there's no way that you'll get an accordion to get past somebody who was dumped by an accordion player when they were 17, you know, uh, and particularly handsome one who just was like the love of their life, but he had played the accordion. And so now accordion players will forever make a sound that you will always hate. The filmmaker will always hate their life. So just don't use an accordion, you know, but maybe if you used a, like a harmonium, you know, is it too close to a, an accordion? Maybe. Okay, so now don't use any double read. <laughs> all right. You know, so, you know, we're all human. So you, you have to sort of poke around in the psyches of the people you work with as well. And you have to understand that they, they want you to know what you're doing. Uh, and you also have to be honest with them and say, we're going to have to experiment. We're going to have to be creative here because this is a complicated one. I'm going to, I'm never going to be able to come up with the first, you know, let me, I want to, I want to play in your, in your playground. This is inspiring to me. I, I've seen your other work and I, I you know, I mean, I, I think I, I got born an identity because I was wandering around a, a video store with my agent uh, between something we were, we were someplace that was in a mall, maybe a like a screening or something. And uh, we were wandering around and I just said to her, come in. And so we wandered around. This was in the days when blockbusters existed. And so we walked around and we looked at just the films. And I was just talking about the films, just seeing the list of films. And I got to Swingers and I'd seen Swingers. And then and I just said, this is, this is one of my favorite films. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I'd love to work with this director. And that, that was all it took for when the call went out two weeks later. You know, and I, by the way, I mentioned a hundred other directors probably uh, at the same time to my agent. But I just, because I, I had very good reasons for putting in my agent's brain why this director, you know, was a genius from having seen that film and loved it and described why I really loved it. So then that puts in your agent my agent's mind that oh yeah he 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 put a really interesting kernel of thought about though that director and those films so then two weeks later the call comes in um you know doug lyman's doing this film and it, it, the the composer he's been working with it's not really working out who else have you got i was on the tip of somebody's tongue so then i are you then that's that chance but it was because I'd, I'd thought about who I liked out there, who I thought made great movies. And so that was a realistic picture of who I wanted to work with. Oh, by the way, everybody, you know, 99% of the people that I mentioned that time, you know, would never have worked with me and never have. But, you know, it was a process of inspiring my, my agent to believe in me so that when they got this offer in, I was probably pushed ahead of somebody else who could have been just as good at it, at, at doing Born Identity than me. But I just did that thing. So everybody around you is, is your kind of connection with the industry. And so you need to talk to them all the time, I think. That's one of the, one of the things that people don't realize, maybe. You need to tell everybody around you why, why you want to do this stuff. And the, 
answer to why do you want to do film music is never because I want to sound like Hans Zimmer or I never want to sound or I want to sound like John Williams or you know never say that honestly it's just that's death to everything it's it should always be about the filmmakers because I, I mean the truth is yeah I want to sound like Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and Elmer Bernstein all simultaneously but honestly if you sound like that and you add in Henry Mancini those four people simultaneously, that's probably who I sound like, but never enough like one of them, really. But the filmmakers you want to work with, that's what succeeds because it's you're connecting with the actual filmmaking, but you're bringing along with it the music that you want to write, which is a mixture of all these other great composers, whether or not they're from film or classical or pop. You just have to be sure that you're doing your you're putting the word out there. You're, you're making, you're manifesting. You know, it's like you manifest. Well, that was a perfect example of me manifesting. I was just talking very passionately with my agent who was on my side anyway. I didn't really have to persuade her, but I was talking very passionately about these things and being clear about what was great about certain films, what was great about filmmakers. So if anything came in on her, in her head was the reasoning that I understood Doug Lyman. That's that's probably it. That's probably why I got the gig. It's like, oh yeah, it was just John was talking about that, and he seemed to really, really. It's not just oh, he likes Doug Lyman's film because the other way you could just learn a hundred directors and just tell your agent that they're never going to remember that. Oh, I like everybody. It's like that's not going to do you any good. Being really serious about why you like things, why you like filmmakers, and why you think you could write the right music is is. That's the thing that will entice people and intrigue them and keep them in your head in a way that is practical. Not, oh, yeah, I spoke to a thousand young composers this morning and they were all telling me about how much they wanted to sound like Hans Zimmer and John Powell and, you know, and Jerry Goldsmith. And it's, uh, you know, where's that going to go? I was talking to a thousand young composers this morning and one was really, really intriguing because he was talking about, you know, Pasolini movie that he he was he thought would be was brilliant and then you get a call and the director's name this morning is like he's a I just spoke to a director and he's because Pasolini's dead by the way but you know he's he's like uh he's a kind of a bit a bit unusual crazy filmmaker from uh you know from Spain that's close that's close enough you see <laughs> it's like <laughs> it doesn't have to be Italian just be Spanish and it's like yeah, I was thinking, and it's a very low budget and I was just talking to this kid earlier and he was talking about maybe I should think of him because how else are you going to get to the top of a thousand a list of a thousand so you have to be interesting you have to be interesting personally you have to be interesting musically I think that I'm, I'm finally boiling it down there was a long long rabble just to get to those two points so if you were to run back and go to that question that you asked me about three days ago, how would you, what would you tell composers? Yeah, be interesting. And what was the last one? <laughs> interesting and be, be interesting personally and musically. There you go. All right. And then, and then this will make this much shorter. <laughs> and well, I typically end this uh, podcast on a segment called Tech Talk, where we talk about the tech. But you've already shared a lot about your tech setup on the internet. The only thing that I had a question about was Ableton for you. Because I see you've been yeah. using it recently. 
I would have loved to have learned at Ableton. I looked at it when it first came out and I thought, this is fantastic. I wish I could feel it. But there, at the time, I just was so locked into logic I, and I was busy. So changing sequences in the middle of three overlapping films was never going to happen. I just couldn't do it. I, I'm too slow. But interestingly, you know, I've logic very quickly caught up you know, so everybody's influencing everybody else. So the thing about logic for me is that they keep up with all of these. They may not be the first with some of these things, but they keep up with it enough that it keeps me, you know, um, comfortable in the language of logic that I know that I am and should be sort of virtuosic on, but interest introduces the, the parts of other people's uh, software that are, you know, new, really new and interesting ideas. So yes, obviously, all the everybody's ripping each other off. But uh, Ableton was a fascinating idea. I just couldn't see the MIDI implement, implementation in it at the time that would have allowed me to get. It, it's one thing if if I was writing music where I have to end up with a stereo track at the end of the day, and bang, that's what we give them. But it's not. It's a terribly technical kind of job sometimes you have to have everything split out and you have to be able to turn grooves you know that sound like de la soul uh, on and off at the same time as orchestration orchestration techniques that are based on Rimsky Korsakov those are two very very different sort of things to try and figure out and to have a piece of software that can do that it both may be comparable. So, for instance, if I really was just writing orchestrated, then I guess in theory, you know, Finale and Sibelius would work better. If I was writing just kind of more pop based music, where I was really interested in just playing with sounds and playing with loops and all that kind of stuff, Ableton is just the thing. If I was recording music, writing music where I wanted to just record everything in all the time and then manipulate it, then Pro Tools is much better. They all have what each other have, but in different sort of amounts and for me logic is probably the big the best compromise you know and i did learn cubase when it first started um but when quickly after about a year after cubase came out I, logic came out i think and and it had enough of the old notator that i worked on you know on my atari for years uh, the, just even like fonts and the, and the kind of the way they were thinking. And so it was easier for me to go to that because it had all of the benefits that Cubase had, but it was, again, it was this friend, it was like an old friend. So in the, it was, it, all the colors were felt comfortable to me. So uh, that's, you know, so I, logic has always been able to keep up with everything well enough. And obviously they, they innovate as well. I don't want, don't want to give you the idea that they innovate things all the time and other people rip them off. So everybody's kind of developing from, you know, each other. I understand that. But it's always been a, a, a piece of software that has enough Ableton in it that I could do some of the things in some movies early on when Ableton was really coming along. And then Logic added Apple loops. And you look at it and you go, okay, well, it's doesn't look as if it's probably as instinctive to do this stuff as Ableton is, but I've also now got my whole orchestration palette underneath it, which would have been very, very hard in Ableton at the time. Uh, and I've also got all the transform sets that I can use, and I've got all the kind of the the weird and wonderful kind of uh, you know MIDI 
things that are so odd and quirky that you know Ableton's really never going to worry about what what octave the piccolo plays in and reads in you know so that when it goes to the orchestrators it's in the right octave and they don't just get it in the wrong octave all the time. there's so many little kind of details that have to go through this process of from creation to final product that you want the one that can be set up the way that makes that sort of pipe pipeline of of you know the, the process the least problematic you know i wish that logic had more surround buses it doesn't it has one surround bus it's got lots of other ways of doing surround but they're not really very solid on surround. Although, to tell you the truth, just over there, I've got one of the new Mac Pros, and um, we've taken Logic off of, you know, off of a bunch of an old Mac from 2010, 11, um, and a bunch of giant PCs. We've taken everything from that and Pro Tools, and we've taken from that, and we're trying to go get it into one of the new Mac Pros. Um, uh, using Vienna and there's still issues about you know how to get everything back into logic or whether to go forward into Pro Tools and so but at the moment we've got everything into one machine and with the credible speed of you know M.2 drives and things it's, it looks like it could work I mean it's a it's a very powerful machine and but I'm really just getting to that point where I'm experimenting so we'll see and and I've been waiting for this because there's a new version of Logic which is going to work. Which is going to work on this. One of the problems that was coming along all the time was Logic could move forward, but because we were on a, a 2011 uh, Mac Pro, you know there were lots and lots of problems with um, with plugin, uh, you know, plugins not working with that particular OS and things. You know, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff always. So we always kind of had to drag behind a little bit, waiting for things to kind of work. Um, I mean, for instance, one of the things I discovered a long time ago, I was strictly at 48 because everything in TV and film is 48. Um, and, and things, I would always have problems with logic and plugins. And one day I just looked at how many people were working at 44.1 because they were doing records with logic. And I, re I realized to myself, I bet everything is tested much more at 44.1. Because it's just as everybody works at 44 more because of records. There's not that many people working in film or TV compared with records. And so I changed to 44.1, and lo and behold, all uh, hundreds of problems with logic went away. This was years and years ago, you know. Um, I'm now working at 96 because one of the great things about you know these systems now is that you can you've got MIDI, you've got sounds that you can do anything with, but you can also record into them. And I've always recorded into Logic um, ever since you could. Uh, and it became a, it's become a hugely useful having live elements. It's, it's a compositional tool as well as, as well as a sonic, you know, uh, recreation of just demos, which so things may get replaced or they go all the way through to the final. You know, you capture that moment playing some weird instrument or having a perfect soprano singing. Um, those things are going to need to be kept all the way through. And the orchestra can be recorded at 192 and I'm still here with a 44.1 bunch of tracks. So there's, you know, so I've been trying to get to sort of at least the middle of that, which is 96. And now, so I've been working in, 96 for about uh, two years now 
um, year and a half. So all of Call of the Wild was done at 96 in Logic, which allowed me to have, you know, players come in and anything we recorded in here, I was never worried about it losing, you know, fidelity or integrity. Uh, I mean, the difference between 44.196, 192, it's, it's kind of subtle, but it just, it keep there is there are certain things where thing where the quality uh, can be just just slightly uh, blurred as you as you change from chop and change from systems and so if you, if there's a continuity I wanted to try that and I think I think a lot you know a lot of the stuff on Call of the Wild proved that to be worth it so you know so this is a new Pro Tools uh, sorry a new Apple Pro. Uh, you know, and it's the it's the newest version of Logic, and it's ninety six, and I'm just sitting down to just start playing with it and see what's happening. And I think they've already got some really interesting functions. They've got this amazing, uh, I you know, one of the things I've in the last twenty three years, I've never played, I've never pressed record on anything ever. Uh, I can't. The minute I press record, I go shit, and I can't do anything however logic and maybe other people i don't know came up with this thing which is retroactively you know, retroactive capture it's a little you know um key command that you could do so you've been so you run the track and you're fiddling around you're not in record which is very significant to my brain uh i'm just playing just looking for sounds looking for things just playing watching like that lo and behold i suddenly realized the last 10 seconds were really good okay memory of a flea so in the old days i would have desperately tried to then figure out what i just played and write it down or i used to run dat machines in the background all the time so if something was good i would have just immediately stop run back to the dat machine and see if i could listen to what i had played but with retroactive capture in logic it meant that i would just go that was good capture it and then go back and you've still now you've got it and i'd cut it turn it a different color turn it red because i like it mute it and then carry on so it was a it was kind of a mind a mind fuck you know not being in record being able to be always exploring but always be able to capture it now they've got a version where and i think this was possible on cubase before where even if it's not playing it's got a buffer in the background so if you're just fiddling around you've just stopped the track you're fiddling around if you think wait a minute that was the answer you can just hit that kind of retroactive you know, uh, capture and it captures uh, a certain amount of time, um, and then it's even figured out how to interpret the your playing into extremely effectively. First time I've ever seen this um, into a tempo map. Which one of the things that we used to do is I would just play things on the piano without a click because the click even was stopping me from being able to think or stopping from being able to hear the next what was coming in the music is you can sort of feel it coming just a few seconds ahead um so i'd be searching for it and be looking for it and if i had a click it would be useless so i would just play and then this thing was off grid and it would take you know quite a bit to re you know tempo map it um i got very good at it and so my assistants but still it's a lot of work so they've they've really got a new function on it that will tempo map you know, kind of improvised playing very well. And it, that could be a real game changer for me. Um, I've used that feature. Uh, sorry. sorry. I was going to say, I use that feature too, where I've worked with the director and they've 
definitely edited to the temp. So I just threw the temp into logic, had it make a tempo map in one go, not even do any thinking, and then you just write to the the pre-made grid. <laughs> yep. No, that, that, that's that's true. There's there's lots of techniques for any of that. And and that that's that's one of the, you know, in your earlier question about being, you know, being assistants and, and getting assistance and things, is that those techniques are all they can be learned, but look, you can learn them by reading other people talking about it or just trying things as well. I mean, I I look back at the things that Hans did that we all do and we all think that that's the way it was. That's the way it is. It wasn't. None of it was that way until Hans just decided that he wanted to do it a certain way and he'd figure out and he and he was an assistant to you know Stanley Myers and and then worked with him and helped him a lot and the thing he learned from Stanley Myers was storytelling and what he didn't ever worry about was learning Stanley Myers technique musically which was just from a different place and he developed his own way of of getting there uh so it doesn't mean that because you're an assistant, you're going to learn the tricks. The tricks might be the things that you think of that nobody else has thought of. And those tricks could be your saving grace as well. You know, they could be your, um, they could just give an intriguing sound to the way you write music simply because you didn't, you weren't an assistant. So you didn't know that that's the way you did it. So you did it your own weird, wonderful, quirky way. And that brings, an extra level of, uh, you know, interesting, interesting to your music. Um, remember now we've got two things. It'd be, be interesting and write interesting music. Um, that's my, those are the, the, the very important parts of, uh, becoming a film composer. The guidebook for success. Yes. I think I'm, I'm glad we did this today because now I've got it down to two things that uh, it's going to be much quicker to be able to explain to people. <laughs> right. <laughs> lots more panels are just going to go way quicker <laughs> much quicker yes yeah well john thank you so much for your time a pleasure hope it helps <laughs> good luck with it all thanks for listening to this episode of composer talk if you like what we're doing feel free to follow us on instagram or facebook the show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible eric bard who's also a talented composer producer and mixer until next time this has been matthew wong